This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We are broadcasting from 3CR in Melbourne, and we will be heard in Sydney at Radio Skid Row. So Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the elders past and present of the Rwandjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Is Mother Earth in palliative care? This question has teased me since I spoke to a nurse last week. She was protesting about the NAB banks financing new coal projects. I looked at her placard of the globe with a thermometer in its mouth and I said, it looks as if Mother Earth is in intensive care. Actually, said the nurse, she's palliative. It chilled me because palliative means you stop all heroic measures. You smooth the dying pillow. Inside, I rebelled, but then it occurred to me that something is dying here. We need to let go of it, this high-carbon growth economy. We're all complicit in the rich countries today, and I'm going to replay a program I recorded with two Bangladeshi mentors of mine in 2020, just to reset our mind, mind uh, thinking about this. Dr. Salim Haq is not afraid to call us climate criminals as we subsidise and finance the exported emissions in coal and gas, which are fueling the cyclones, sea level rise and now enormous Asian heat wave. Just now, this heat wave in Bangladesh is so bad that electricity demand exceeded supply. The recent cyclone Mokka forced the closure of their floating liquefied natural gas terminals and they have had to shut down the biggest coal-fired power plant due to lack of coal on hand. Dr. Salim Al-Huq says they also need a new mindset. If rich people all turn on their air conditioning and crash the system, other citizens will die. So we'll start with Runa Khan and her hospital ship, the friendship that goes around the backwaters upriver in Bangladesh, and then a small bit from Dr. Salim al in 2020. Thank you very much for listening. Hey, it's Scarlett Cook. Get piano powered. Get community radio powered. Stay tuned, stay radical, and donate to 3CR's 2023 Radiothon. You can come in during office hours or online, 3cr.org.au slash donate. Episode 1 in a new series from the front lines of climate catastrophe. In Bangladesh, there are frequent floods and cyclones. People used to die in their thousands, like this desperate man, recorded by Makhbul, as his house is swept away by one of the thousand rivers. I think this is like an I can't breathe moment. <laughs> Heavy rain and winds make many places inaccessible, and we talk to the founder of a floating hospital called Friendship. Her name is Runa Khan, and you will find her as inspiring as Martin Luther King. It's not just about saving lives, she says, but giving back people's dignity. And we, in the high emissions world, can be partners in that by learning from them, not just sending a cheque in a crisis, but being real partners. It's just like you. Subscribe to 3CR as a partner with us in providing independent media. You can learn about people on the front lines of climate disruptions and do everything you can to stop Australia's emissions and exported emissions in coal and gas. 
We have only 25 million people, yet we are responsible for 1.28% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Bangladesh, with 160 million people, emits less than 1%. Our second Bangladeshi expert is eminent scientist Dr. Salim Ulhaq. He tells us about the damage to the Sundaban forest, how supercyclone Amphan was caused by heating the surface temperature on the Bay of Bengal. He says the response to COVID-19 by governments who listened to the science saved lives, and he cites New Zealand as being very good at that. The response to climate change, he says, needs to be the same. Go in early, go in hard, and do not leave vulnerable people behind. So think of that, our response to COVID, it may have been patchy, but we can improve that for climate change. Go in early, go in hard, do not leave vulnerable people behind. Whereas Runa Khan is a spirited speaker, Dr. Salim Ulhaq is very calm, but both have fiery words that will open your heart. These people have no time for despair and powerlessness like so many of us in rich Australia. Runa is expecting five new hospital ships to be delivered soon and the millions of people trained to warn people about cyclones and, and uh, floods are now going around with loud hailers in the villages wearing masks and delivering a COVID pandemic health message. They are really well organised and I've heard that Bangladesh is really a model for being on the front foot with adaptation to crisis. This is one of the most inspirational shows I've done. I so enjoyed talking to both of these people. Tonight we're going to Bangladesh in the wake of super cyclone Amphan. We've heard before that Bangladesh is a leader in adaptation to the awful conditions created by climate disruption. In the 1990s, a cyclone left 10 million people homeless and killed 140,000 people. Last year, Cyclone Fani only killed 17 people, I think, and 2.5 million people were safely evacuated. Our guest tonight will be Miss Runa Khan. She's the founder of a not-for-profit organisation called Friendship. It started literally with a barge that was turned into a hospital ship. So welcome, Runa. Tell us about the remote river islands. People in Australia won't know this geography very well unless they've travelled to your country. I'd like to know how you had the idea to take services to those people eking out a living there. Thank you very much, Vivian. Um, I'm very pleased to be with you this evening. Um, so I need to describe Bangladesh a little bit to you. Bangladesh is a country of a thousand rivers. All right, you have three of the largest rivers in the world, which is uh, the Brahmaputra, as the Jamuna, the Ganges, which fly, flows in as the, as the Padda and the Meghna. And Bangladesh is built on silt. The average of Bangladesh, you know, the average height of Bangladesh is, they say 10 meters, but that's including the very narrow strip of hill tracks. So if you uh, take away the hill tracks, the country is between three to five meters high. You have tidal waves which come nearly more than center, you know, of the country. So when, and the, as I said, the whole country is built on silk and we don't have rocks. So when the mighty Himalaya, you know, from the mighty Himalayas, the river Brahmaputra comes into Bangladesh, no rocks. It is, it comes in at sometimes at 10 to 12 knots. So you can imagine what devastation it can cause these rivers on the silt land. A river can become 30 kilometers in breadth, you know, in breadth. So you can hold the city of Paris between its two banks. <laughs> and in that, you know, and on that river, you have these river islands, all silt built. And the river islands are broken and redone year after year. Now, it's all right if you have a population of a million people in the country. This is a population of 170 million people who don't have places to stay. So continuously, the people are migrating, the islands are migrating, and you are shifting. And so about 20 years ago, when I went into these river islands, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that people were actually able to survive, you know, with, you know, holding their lives, their livelihood, their assets, everything in their hands. And that is what they were doing. And, you know, people are, were shifting. They were continuously 
you know, uh, they were migrating island to island or island to the cities. And, uh, and within that, I realized that they were so forgotten because nobody was coming to these islands mm -hmm. because they were just too difficult to manage. Services were too difficult to manage. And stepping back, you know, when you have nothing, what is the first thing you need to do? You need to ensure that people don't suffer. And for me, saving lives became the, the kind of, you know, was the only focus I had in my life to ensure that people did not suffer and I could save lives. And hence, I started with the first, you know, we are the pioneer in the world, actually, they say, of mobile, NGO mobile hospitals yeah. ships. And so we started with the first mobile hospital ships and built the system from there. Right. 100% of the friendship work, just to say 100% of the friendship work, and the communities we deal with, 100% are all either internally displaced people by climate action, or they are the refugees coming from the Rohingya country, you know, from Myanmar. So we have refugees, 100% of our people, wow. the beneficiaries. Let's uh, stick with the hospital idea. I think you also have uh, um, river ambulances as well. But what happens on those hospital ships? And now, especially as we're in a pandemic and you've just had another cyclone. Yes. So I, I need to describe a little bit on the friendship healthcare system. So, you know, when you have a hospital ship or you have a mobile unit, uh, in a way, people think that that's the end of it. It's not the end of it because suppose you've done an operation or, you, or as we are doing, we're treating cervical cancer, or we are with an EPI, you know, extended immunization for children. What do you do when you have to do follow-ups? So we could not only have the hospital ships. So the hospital ships were there, and we had to take care of the people surrounding, because that was our responsibility also. And uh, so we built a three-tier healthcare system. The hospital ships are the tier one. The satellite clinics and the static clinics, which are land-based clinics or mobile clinics, were tier two. And tier three were the community workers that we trained and empowered so that they could continue delivery of services even when we were not there, all linked together with the mHealth and algorithm-based software. So this is the three-tier system of friendship. Coming back to the hospital ships, so each hospital ship that we have got, we've got two now, we had three, but now it's two because the Greenpeace uh, boat, you know, the Rainbow Warrior we had for about six years, but that was a bit old. And we're having, we're going to get five new hospital ships this year. They're all under construction. Oh, so great. the hospital, <laughs> so the hospital ships have got, uh, they are actually equipped as secondary tier, up to secondary tier as a full-fledged unit. So we have, the people will stand outside in a line. They come in group by group, they are registered, then they are sent to the specific doctor that they have to go to, and uh, it, they, we have got dental care, general care, of course, women and children care. Uh, we have a strong cervical, uh, cervical, uh, cervical cancer unit for screening and mm -hmm. also doing the first level of care, and we have very good pathology on all the hospital ships and two operation theatres. Well, you said in the webinar that saving lives is not enough. And I really sat up when you said that. You said saving lives is not enough. What is your way of, you said you put down roots with people. It's not just a Band-Aid service where you come in in a crisis. Yeah. You want to make long-lasting connections with those people, but then you float away. Your boat sails away somewhere. So what is your way of putting down roots in those communities so that they can face climate disasters, which are becoming more frequent? One reply is saving lives is not enough because you save a life and the person can die of an infection after you've saved their life <laughs> or they cannot get food after you've saved their life or they are socially so ostracized that they can't stand up with dignity. That is also gone. So, you know, you need to address things holistically. In a community which has access to nothing, not even a road or not even electricity or a shop, you need to address all the, all the difficulties together. And a migratory community, you know, which is our climate-impacted communities and migrations, you know, which we are, as I said, we are dealing with 6.5 million people every year, and they're all migratory people in some way or the other, you know? And, and for them, we needed to ensure that, one, 
besides saving lives, also not only in health, but also when, when there was a climate disaster, which means in a climate disaster, it's preparedness. You know, the millions of people who could be saved because of the, you know, in spite of the cyclones coming, were because they were prepared, people like us and the government, we prepared them that when the cyclone warning comes, these are the steps you have to follow to go to these cyclone shelters, how to take your cows, or when the land is breaking, what do you do? Mm. You see, or when the storm comes in, how do you protect and, you know, ensure that your houses don't blow away so easily? When a bad cyclone comes, everything blows away, you know, <laughs> their houses don't stay, they have to move. But, you know, for a normal, like, a, like uh, when you have like uh, one, two, three, four uh, uh, cyclones falling, then, then you can tie up your house and fix up your place and, you know, you can survive. And it's extremely important for preparedness. So we we do a lot of preparedness. We do relief. And even the community, we have something which is community-initiated disaster risk reduction, where we link the communities uh, amongst themselves. You know, they all the communities we work with, they know that they have to, uh, and how many widows are there or how many old people are there and pregnant people are there, and they know what to do. They know the phone calls. They have... They have Sometimes they ensure that they have planted enough banana plants so that they can make a raft and go if they don't have a boat. You see, yeah. so to a degree, you know, and for swimming, uh, of course, when the when the floods come in, you can't swim, but normal disasters, you know, yeah. we do a lot of swimming training. Then we do, a, uh, then we also, you know, so if we prepare them what to do in case and also to save food when the, when the disaster, you know, when the, when the floods are kind of up to their roof. So how to save food, what is the kind of food they can save, how to uh, come back again and how to access government services. All this is linked, yeah. uh, you know, together for saving lives. The next thing I want to ask you is about education. And you do a lot of education, a huge amount through theatre groups, through TV, through YouTube channels. Now, Australian listeners will know about this now because we're under lockdown with the coronavirus. And so we're all learning. Children have to do by distant learning because of that, but do it all the time to these remote, remote people and also classrooms for adult tech learners as well. And I think this is a huge job, but you put in this a code of ethics and dignity. You emphasise yeah. that. Something like that has to be at the centre. And I'd like to know what results do you see from this ethics and dignity education and all the rest of the other sorts of education? Um, what results do you see, especially for women and girls? Hmm. So, Vivian, you know, when I started uh, schools, these were areas where teachers couldn't come and uh, actually there was no one taking, uh, 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 you know, doing high schools in these areas, you know, when we, when we started our schools here 20 years ago. And we needed to ensure that we take into account the geography of that area. And this is, I think, one of the key of the way we work. There are two essential threads of anything friendship does. One is ensuring that we take into account the geography and nature. This is something we learned 20 years ago that you could not fight. You know, you had to accept that there was there's a specificity and you needed to fit whatever you could within that specificity. Second was human rights. Because if you do not imbue and nurture and bring out the essence, essential sense of value that a human being has, you are actually not equipping them for the future. You know, so for example, in a disaster, I tell all my volunteers, you know, we've got thousands of volunteers going for disasters, and in a disaster that I tell them that do not take away more than what you are giving. You're giving them a bag of rice, you know, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. You're giving them a bag of, bag of rice but if you do this in a way where they lose their self-respect, for example, throwing it at them, shouting at them, etc., you are taking away more than what you are giving them. And never do this. It's unacceptable. Because then that is the true sustainability of a project. You know, that is where when you touch those. So for me, education was a very important factor. Now, education, I could equip, you know, we could try to equip these children with 
you know, linking them with the government system. It was impossible to teach them, you know, uh, Montessori systems or anything like, you know. So we have to go in for mass and mass because there were millions of children, thousands and thousands of children in these all these areas. So we needed to find a very simple system which could be replicated. And, you know, so it's schools which can be brought down. Teachers are people women from the community whom we train to be teachers and they are linked to us initially we were having trainings now we are doing it through uh, through television through the computers <laughs> and this would only be all right up to the primary level but at the secondary level you needed good teachers so we have a recording studio in dhaka and we only had facilitators who were uh, you know uh, teaching the children you know who were there with the children whilst they learned from online now this is okay so this was good <laughs> now let's go back to code of ethics and then i'll link it up when we started i knew that i needed to equip these children in the best way possible and best way being not only academics because you know you can be very good in academics you can do nothing with your life you know, this happens that you have, you've fallen through the gap somewhere or you've not had, you know, either you are not strong enough to push that little bit of strength that you have. So I needed to build characters. And what is character building? For me, the most essential component is nurturing human values within the person. And so we started this code of ethics. And, I, and this is something which now, not only in our children, but all the lives we touch, you know, the 6.5 million lives we touch a year, everyone is, this is something which is in the forefront of every meeting, of every communication. And uh, so uh, I'll tell you a little story on this. Uh, so one day we had, uh, this was quoted by a, one of our teachers, you know, just like that as a story, you know, I once was talking to them that he was passing somewhere, it was raining, you know, uh, near a river and it was raining. It was, well, not a river, sorry. It's a little, it was a little stream. And he was just passing that and it was raining. There was an old couple who was standing there. And this old couple said that, uh, uh, old couple, he said that, you know, please bring me that little boat to another group of children who were in that area. You know, please bring me that little boat. We want to cross. And the kids were not listening at all. They were playing. And the old man got so mad. He said, you know, I know you're not friendship children. If you were friendship children, you, without me asking you, would have brought the boat to me and helped me to cross. <laughs> you know, this, this is like so beautiful for me to hear that, yeah. you know, that we have given them something. And these children, every day we see, you know, how they have developed in character and strength and courage. So it has been a very important thing to ensure that even when the government is using our uh, our YouTube channels, etc., I managed to put in that value, you know, yeah. of the month in the code <laughs> of ethics. <laughs> well, another another thing about education is training people, and um, I imagine a lot of those river communities are off the grid, and they're even remote from feeling like citizens. It sounds like, yeah, they don't get any government yeah. services. They probably don't really feel they have any rights. Um, but I wonder, does friendship do anything with getting solar power to those people and training them to maintain the equipment? If you're not in a remote place, it happens in Australia too, remote communities have to have their own, um, you know, solar power. So do you help with that? Thank you, uh, Vivian. You know, what you have touched is how responsible are you to uh, ensuring that what you have sold to a poor person, you are continuing the service. <laughs> this is actually the crux of your question, you know. It's not only for solar powers, it's for, we try to do this for everything. So regarding solar power, we, of course, we brought in light into these islands. And it could only be done through solar power. So we have installed thousands of panels. And most of them, 90% uh, of uh, you know, uh, uh, the panels, they are repaying us back. Of course, we have given some free to the ultra poor of very, you know. So our thing was that, uh, you know, what we wanted to do was ensure that the price of a lamp, which they were using, which is health-wise, etc., could be compensated by one light at the same cost. 
So that was the technique, you know, that was the idea that we went in. And we found that as years passed, they were wanting more than one light. They were wanting two lights and five lights and ten, light, you know, fans and a, and a little, uh, uh, you know, a little TV or something. And of course, charging their phones. And but uh, you know, in every island, like it is with the with the with the solars, also for our uh, uh, for our livestock, you know, the cattle, the livestock uh, loans that we gave, or or the uh, field. We always, or in the field, you know, for agriculture or fishing, we never just give the loan and come away. We ensure that in that community there is one paravet. So we've got these paravets in every place that we have given a loan for a cow or a goat. We have we started the first parasolar technician trainings in the country, and even to uh, when we do government work, we train the people as parasolar technicians, community people who can repair and they know where to buy the uh, parts from. Many of them have set up shops, you know, and they have. Uh, it's amazing the way human, you know, <laughs> you know, human beings can develop. <laughs> and linking one of our services is in, one of our sectors is inclusive citizenship, which is linked with empowerment. Inclusive citizenship is where we deal with deep social issues, you know, human rights and issues. So we have these groups uh, in each village, many, many, everybody more or less is linked to this group. And these are, uh, and we have a parasolar, uh, and we have a paralegal aid. So in Right now, I think there's 75 islands in which we have got paralegal aides that we train. Mm. They go through extensive legal training with us, though they are themselves, they have not even passed high school. Many, Most of them have not even passed high school. And we, they, they have their own little paralegal booths. And uh, the whole community works with them. Now, you know, this is, again, I would say the quality is, a, is one of our uh, you know, values. If you do not work with very good quality and you go to a remote island and start telling them the laws, I mean, the mm. husband, if you tell the husband or the mm. wife turns around and tells the husband, you can't do that. The husband can kill the wife if he wants, you know, or throw her away. And, you know, that's it. So you've actually destroyed more. So, so these, slowly over the years, we ensured that these paralegals had uh, had that uh, acceptability in the community yeah. and then acceptability in the government. And now our paralegal aides are really an accepted community member of the district courts. So they write, uh, 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 you know, uh, they, can, they can write a, uh, an issue that's happening or put up a case which is accepted in the district courts. And mm -hmm. this, this for me is very important and through them and also through our other members, we link them up to the government services hmm. because friendship can be there today, tomorrow. You never know. We are, after all, only an organization. We mustn't be yeah. so vain to think that yeah, we'll yeah. always exist, you know, but it's one organization, but they have to get linked to the government services. And that is what we do very, very strongly. Oh. And uh, yeah, so. Yeah. yeah, well, it's it's so positive what you're saying. I keep thinking this is, you know, I don't want to give the wrong impression to the listeners that it's all fantastic in your country because every year, as you said, you're getting more of these climate disasters. And uh, when I spoke to Dr. Salim Ulhaq, I mean, the listeners will remember he's a famous climate scientist. He's at the United Nations all the time arguing for, you know, compensation and for help, you know, proper help, but not just a handout, but more for ongoing structured help. But what I was most impressed with him, uh, it was by his compassion for the Rohingya refugees who had just then come across, you know, we were just getting these, the little bit of news about these floods of million, you know, nearly now a million people, I think now, came across from Myanmar, and they're still there, I believe. So they've been through several cyclones, a pandemic, and he just showed such positivity and compassion. It really showed up all the other countries in the world that are not kind to refugees, notably Australia and, you know, many parts of Europe too. They're very not as willing to. He said, oh, we will educate them. We will look after them until they find a way back to their citizenship in their own country. And it was just such an eye-opener to me, his, his attitude, which is a little bit like the way you're talking but how does friendship help people like that? But how do you get also how do you get 
Europeans and outsiders to, to, to help you with this problem. That's the most unfair thing, that you're suffering the, the climate change that we're causing by over, you know, the uh, emissions-intensive countries and also by the refugee situation. That, that's just an incredible burden for your country and yet you're facing it with a smile. How? How? What can you say about that? Vivian, when you see pain and suffering every day, Every day, I have had a woman coming to me with a child, you know, hold, held in her arms with cerebral palsy and telling me in the chores that the local doctor, you know, the quack, has said, I can't do anything about with this child. Should I kill the child? That's real story. You know, I have seen women who have, who takes care of their husband and leaves, you know, uh, uh, the husband had... Uh, 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 you know, it's like leprosy. It's called uh, um, I'm sorry, I've been forgetting the name. But it's like it's something like leprosy, and uh, so she would leave the husband there with a bit, uh, uh, with a bit of rice and and you know lentils. Walk to Dhaka, which is the city, you know, the, the town. It would take her three days. Beg on the street and go back and feed that husband. You know, and poverty level was like this, and. In many places, it's like that. So these are people that, when I, you know, when I'm talking with a smile, mm. Bangladesh is a country of 170 million people. 45% are still below poverty line. How do you, how do they deal? How are they prepared for dealing with one wave which comes and takes everything away? Mm. You know, it's, it is, you see this every single day. You see this. All you can do is ensure that they have the strength to survive and live. Their resilience, their courage, this is what you can imbue and why I spoke so strongly on how we try to imbue this in the people that you can live mm. because it's something which we face every day. And this, this I think has, and this and after this is the access to services which will strengthen you because if you don't have, if your health is bad, you can't get enough to eat. How are you going to survive? How are you going to survive when the, la when the st storms come in and everything is broken and taken away in front of your eyes? What strength you need? The, you see, this is the first time that, a pan you know, that in a crisis like Bangladesh suffers every year several times. Mm -hmm. Today, the world is suffering with one issue. Mm. Bangladesh is suffering issue after issue, disaster after disaster, several times a year. And what does, it's not our contribution really to the world, you know, the global climate issue, you know, but we are the sufferers. We have to learn to adapt, otherwise we will not survive. And it is, and this is what we have to do. Now for the Rohingyas, you know, the day the Rohingyas came in, you know, we were there. We are the largest health organization, local health organization with the Rohingyas. We have about 200, 250 schools in the Rohingya camps. We've got, you know, we've done health, water, sanitation, bathroom, whatever. You know, I, I, I say it easily, but I remember the time when the Rohingyas came in. Vivian, we had never seen this happen. You know, friendship has brought children down from trees when the cyclones came. I have seen with my own eyes children swept away, you know, when the, when the floods came in and we could do nothing for the child. The child was gone before I, I could even get the speedboat, you know, to go after the child. Even then when the Rohingyas came in, the pain, it was incredible. You know, I told my staff, I said, you know, don't listen to stories because then you can't function. I couldn't function if I started listening to stories. You know, I said, you can't because every time you think you have dealt with catastrophes, in that catastrophe, what do you say? Okay, God has done it. And the end, you know, when a cyclone comes, we are still saying God has done it, you know. So, but here you can get angry because you can see the villages burning on the other side. Mm -hmm. You see, we were standing on this side near Teknaf and you could see the villages burning on that side. Mm -hmm. it, you cannot, I don't know how to explain this. The, you know, we work with compassion. We have to work with empathy. We, our staff has to work with courage. It broke us, you know, in that rain. I remember going down in that rain, walking in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the streets, you know, with rain and all the, 
refugees all around mm. trying to just figure out what to do where to start and and it was it has been extremely difficult of course i'll tell in spite of whatever the world says mm. you know it has been bangladesh at vivian who has taken these refugees in the government has taken them in and the government is feeding them of course with the world help because you see the chores that is also our condition that is also our reality <laughs> so we have both on two sides tell me what can you do but smile because if you don't smile you don't get courage <laughs> to continue for tomorrow mm. you know we have to smile wow <laughs> well last thing is uh, oh I, for, I i forgot to ask you about the boat building there, there's also something in the training of people you were trying to resuscitate um traditional crafts that were you know traditional uh, yes how did uh, tell us a little bit about that <laughs> some people would like to hear about that so i am often called a boat lady which is kind of a bit political but it's not at all the <laughs> thing this is like 20 years ago 20 even 25 years ago so you know <laughs> Bangladesh has the largest uh, fleet of had the largest fleet of inland boats in the world once upon a time wooden boats in the world and the technology has come down uh, verbally for more than 5000 years and we, nobody has recorded it and it's a unique technology which is known as a smooth skin boat building and the Uh, and each because each each area each river in bangladesh due to communication uh, difficulties develop their own kind of not technology as much as designs of different boats so the the technology of boat is based inland river boats is basically the smooth skin boat with more than 130 different or more you know you you don't exactly know the numbers more than 120 30 kinds of different designs and these had suddenly when my ex husband and i used to sail on the rivers because i loved boats and he actually loved boats and he put that into me and uh, we used to sail on the rivers and we used to see these boats every year disappearing less and less boats and we suddenly realized that the people that we that you know that i later started working with they their one single thing which links them all mm. is the culture of the rivers and the culture of the rivers the boat for them is their story their the boats are their songs boats are their livelihood mm. it was so important you know that we do something about the boats so first we started personally doing it and then i realized personally it was going to get impossible because i had friendship on one side and then it was a bit difficult so uh, then i i said you know if we are trying to bring human identity and dignity we cannot ignore the human culture you know culture is extremely important that is what brings dignity and identity to a community and that is what gives them strength so we do this cultural preservation of the boats of bangladesh which are totally unique we had to do something because i think it is with the boats that i realized that as soon as you realize that they are going away and you are the only one who has realized this or you know your little group is the only one you are immediately you have a responsibility <laughs> you see you can't run away from that responsibility anymore <laughs> so i say this realization leads to a responsibility you know yeah. and we had to do something and so we started <laughs> and they're beautiful you should see them <laughs> i'm going to put some pictures on the um this is a podcast you know this will be audio only and i wish the listeners could see you because you're so animated there's like a little lovely television screen here that I'll put the photos of the boats on our web page. The main thing that came across from you was be prepared. This message, be prepared. Yeah. You know, nothing would face you because you've got warehouses full of face masks and you've got, you know, equipment for rice bags. <laughs> you've prepared. You you are fully aware. And that was the main idea that got through to me. And you were talking to people in Europe on that webinar. There were a lot of donors there, and you talked a little bit about the pandemic. That now the whole world has got this one shared suffering. You're getting the suffering all the time, but we're sharing this one thing in the world. And you said to them, um, "There's a way of giving that's a responsible donor. You have to be a responsible donor. Yeah. Like you said, you don't throw the bag of rice at people and take away their dignity." and i have a feeling that you would like and i think dr salim will have had the same idea you would like people to be really partners with you and to be responsible donors and i'd like to know what just to finish what can we learn 
about a more dignified partnership in climate action. It's not going away. Climate change is really no. accelerating. And so we need to partner with you. Thank you. Uh, just to mention that Dr. Selim Haq is an advisor to Friendship on Climate Issues. So we are very honored for that and very happy to have him with us. So, yes, um, as I said that, you know, you need, you see, donors and donee, somehow there is a question of having more knowledge and money on one side and less on the other. Now, this needs to be a partnership where we do, you know, the intrinsic knowledge which you have at the field level. So let's put it, the donors vis-a-vis -vis friendship, friendship vis-a-vis -vis the community. It's exactly the same. If we do not work in deep and true understanding together with the community, the commu we will never be able to make a project which is long-term and sustainable. In the same way, if we do not have donors who understand the issues and problems that their partners are facing, you cannot have a sustainable relationship or an output from a project or an impact of a project which is deep and sustainable. You know, we need climate, climate change, climate action, climate crisis is a word which is for many countries, well, for Trump, Mr. Trump and many others, maybe it doesn't exist, but, you know, but it is a climate, it's really an issue for tomorrow, you know, for many of them, it's for issue that can happen, cannot. But I would say now, today, 90% of everyone understands it. Everyone realizes it and everyone wants to do something. Equality, this can happen when there is more equality in the world and there is more responsibility in the world and more solidarity because countries, it doesn't matter. India, Bangladesh, Burma, and you know, it's all the same. And it's a region. <laughs> you know what I mean? When, like, when, the, when the cyclone strikes, it can be with anybody. When the water level rises, it's for anybody. It's not, it's not Sicily and Italy or it's not, you know, it's all one. So this solidarity, you need to internalize. Now, there, then there are some mitigation things which are certain people's responsibility. You know, certain countries, certain organizations, certain leaders. There are things the leaders can do. There are things companies can do. There are things we at the field level can do. And then there are things individuals can do. Every one of us has this responsibility. And we need to understand this and work with that. But none of us, you know, if the individual doesn't do it, the, the organizations like ours don't do it, it doesn't go up. Stretching it all, we need respect. In the same way, we need to respect nature. You see, we have created a world where wants, needs, our capitalism, you know, it's so, for me, it's so, that is, that is what we are all striving towards. If they look, are we giving the right of the birds the rights? Are we giving the animals their rights? Are we giving the rivers their rights? Are we giving the trees their rights? All of us have equal rights in this world. We are all part of nature. Human beings are also part of nature. And we tend to forget that, you know, in our strides, you know, <laughs> of, of betterment and more. <laughs> I think this is something which needs to be ingrained in us. I think this needs to, as, as an individual, as an organization, as a leader, we need to face this. We need countries which have less need help because they are not always responsible, you know, for this climate crisis which is happening. Yeah. I am not saying that we only need money or this or that. We need understanding and we need solutions as to what to do. If that solution involves money, be it money. If that solution involves uh, migration, then it's migration. You see, we need that understanding because the world is one. It's, we have, as everybody says, no plan B, it's planet B. So it's, we have, it's one and we need the solidarity to have exist in our minds, in, in our behaviors, because in our minds is not happened, in our actions from the individual to the politicians, to the leaders, to the corporate houses, greed cannot drive us, you know, no. cannot be driven by that. It, it is going to spoil the planet. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Runa. <laughs>
I respect you. I think, you know, between you and Dr. Salim Al-Haq, I've never heard such sparkling, you know, positivity and can-do attitude and innovation and all of that. It's just sparkles out of you. And look at your geography. When I look at the map, I think you're just the end of the line. The great Himalayan glaciers melting down and you just get that full force as you described at the very beginning. You need you need everybody to be on your side. And I hope a lot of listeners will look up your website and they can just press a donate button or they can really get involved, as you said. So thank you very much. Friendship. Thank you, Vivian. Thank Thank you you for the solidarity. Thank you. That was uh, Runa Khan from an organisation called Friendship. And even subtropical rainforests that don't usually burn were actually on fire. We have the obligation to care for country. So much forest burnt that around 3 billion animals are either killed or displaced. The more we push back against the colonial apparatus, the more positive change we can have in terms of addressing climate change. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2023. Now we'll hear a small part of Dr. Salim Ulhaq's talk on a webinar I attended with IED from UK. It's called Climate COVID-19 and the collaboration we need. Uh, So let me start by uh, sharing a few of my thoughts from where I am located here in Dhaka, Bangladesh, about the link between COVID-19, which is now uh, still a major problem here in Dhaka. We're still in lockdown, working from home over the last month and continuing to do that. Uh, But the fact that even though we have this uh, uh, public health pandemic uh, on our heads at the moment, it doesn't mean that climate change has gone away. Climate change is still there. And we were reminded of that fact just a couple of weeks ago here when we had a super cyclone, Amphan, hit, uh, fortunately for Bangladesh, it hit India first and then came to Bangladesh, but it still did a lot of damage. Fortunately, not many lives lost because we have a very, very good emergency warning system and people took shelter. More than two and a half million people were able to be get the warnings and take shelter so that the the lives loss was minimized, but uh, nevertheless, there was a lot of damage done, particularly to the Shundarban forest, which got hit first, and then that also protected the human habitation, but there was a lot of damage uh, to the forest, the flora and the fauna there. And so, you know, the, and, and the fact that it cyclones are not new, cyclones happen every year, but this happened to be a super cyclone because the Bay of Bengal sea surface temperature was elevated by over a degree, and I understand that the Indian government has just launched a climate satellite where they're now monitoring these temperatures on a regular basis and they have verified the fact that the Bay of Bengal temperature was elevated above normal which turned it into a super cyclone which we we rarely get normally we get normal cyclones we don't get super cyclones so this was a particularly bad one in that sense and we're likely to get more of them so the bottom line is that climate change continues climate change impacts continue And even though we have a a COVID-19 crisis at the moment, we're going to have to deal with both crises at the same time, a public health crisis on the one hand, a climate change crisis on the other hand, and an economic crisis as a result of that as well. And so to me, just to share a few uh, thoughts of, of my own coming out of this, firstly, to me, one of the biggest lessons that the COVID-19 pandemic, global pandemic has brought to us is the necessity of leaders to listen to the scientists. And we have a vivid demonstration of leaders who listen to the scientists, who have protected their populations. For example, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, where Atala is now sitting, who are now COVID-free, and the leaders of several countries, including the richest and most powerful country in the world, who refuse to listen to their scientists and are responsible for the deaths of thousands of their own citizens. I can't, you know, think of anything worse as a decision maker of of these leaders. And he's not the only one. There are several others as well around the world, which I won't name, uh, but we know who they are. And they they have, by ignoring the science, killed, I'll say killed, 
their own citizens. And that is really unconscionable. And climate change is another one. Climate change scientists have been saying this for a long time. And, you know, they aren't listening. They have to listen if they really want to help their own countries going forward. Uh, the second, I think, emphasis of uh, a, a example that or lesson that is being conveyed is we live in a globalized world. There is no way to put walls and, and barriers around your country. You can try to do it, but you're not going to do it. It's not going to be effective. Uh, the pandemic goes around the world. The virus goes across borders and Bangladesh will also uh, uh, be affected as every other country will be affected and we will need to uh, work with each other. So whether we like it or not, the only way to take uh, our ideas forward and to come out of this crisis is to work together, is to cooperate, collaborate, uh, share knowledge and experience and, and uh, help each other as it were. And then the, the third and final point I will make is with regard to who gets affected. And you mentioned a little earlier that the work I've been doing at IID and I continue to do is focusing on the impacts of climate change on the most vulnerable communities in the most vulnerable countries, particularly the least developed countries in Asia and Africa. As it happens, the pandemic and particularly the lockdown measures in the big cities like Dhaka and, and Mumbai and Cape Town and Nairobi are affecting the most vulnerable communities in the slums in these big cities right now who are also the, going to be the victims of the impacts of climate change. So it's a double whammy for them in the sense of the most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change are also the most vulnerable to the COVID-19. And therefore, the corollary of that is anything we do to deal with the pandemic and the economic recovery has to take into account a, not just a green recovery or a green uh, future, but also an equitable recovery where we take care of the most vulnerable. To me, just being green is not good enough, although I support uh, green uh, uh, investments and recovery, but green has to be also equitable where we think of not leaving anyone behind, thinking of the most vulnerable and enabling us to support them and to be able to help them going forward. So I think the challenge has become bigger, but the need for our collaboration has also become that much bigger as well. Here are his comments in a June interview with Antoine Rondelet. This is Dr. Salim Al-Haq speaking. We are now in what I call the era of losses and damages from climate change. Every day, week, month and year from now, things are going to get worse everywhere. This isn't just a developing country only story. It's a worldwide story. Every country will be hit and every country is unprepared to some extent. Yet no country is better prepared than Bangladesh. We lead the world in this. The human initial reaction to these climate stresses is self-preservation. We don't always consider the cl collective impact. But we're going to have to shift this mindset. We must consider everyone, not just ourselves. Short-term fixes like air conditioning won't work, especially considering frequent power cuts. We need to approach this new problem with new thinking. Traditional thinking won't suffice, but this transition is going to be tough. The G7, for instance, is still stuck in old paradigms. They don't fully comprehend what's about to impact their own countries. They still believe a bit of adjustment here and there will suffice but business as usual won't continue. Those earning significant money from activities causing damage are well aware of the harm they're causing. They are quite skilled at spreading misinformation and influencing politicians. The G7 leaders are all beholden to the fossil fuel industry. They can speak, but they're unable to act against their own fossil fuel industries. So we're up against powerful and harmful forces. These entities knowingly cause harm and appear indifferent to the human cost, so long as they're profiting. But it's a battle we must fight. When Antoine Rondelet asked him, is this an opportunity for countries from the global south to take the lead in shifting the paradigm with climate change? Absolutely, says Dr. Salim al -Haq. That's exactly what I advocate. 
If you want to learn how to deal with the climate change impacts that are coming your way, no matter where you are, even if you're in a wealthy country thinking you won't be affected, come to Bangladesh and learn. It's not about high-tech solutions. It's about people knowing what to do and working together to do it. When the cyclone was approaching, the last one, 500,000 people heeded the warning. They took shelter and were prepared. That's the essence of preparedness, knowing what to do and acting when necessary to minimise impacts. You can't eliminate impacts completely, but you can reduce them. For instance, people living in earthquake-prone Tokyo have regular drills. They know what to do in an earthquake. The same goes for people in Bangladesh's coastal zone. When a cyclone is approaching, everyone knows what to do. That's the real essence of preparedness. And then Rondelet asks him, how would you explain to someone from a developed country why they should care about the impact of climate change on developing countries? And Dr. Salim Ohak says, well, there are two main reasons. Firstly, there's a moral imperative. If they have any moral standing, they will realise that it is wrong for poor people to suffer from the problems caused by the rich. This is an evident injustice. But I also believe that engaging with the younger generation in developed countries is particularly fruitful. Older people are set in their ways and our leaders who are mostly older are unlikely to change. Yet young people are more receptive to new ideas and ready for change. I tell them that their planetary citizenship is now far more important than their national citizenship. Planet Earth is under attack from climate change, and this is a global issue that requires a global response. While we lack a global government, we can work together as global citizens. And that's, that's just the little example of thinking in Bangladesh, Dr. Salim Ulhaq giving that sort of courage, energy, desire for collective action, global action. Maybe Mother Earth, as it is now, the economic system as it is now, is in palliative care. And we'll soon be putting a memorial over its gravestone. But the emerging thinking, I think, coming from countries like Bangladesh, is something that we must sit up and pay attention to and learn from. Wondering how to pay your donation to 3CR Radiothon? It's easy. You can pay online at 3cr.org.au or call us any weekday with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash or card. Or simply post your check or money order to P.O. Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned. Stay radical. and Dr. Salim Ulhaq. Thank you to Kate Preston and Radia Salim and the people who invited me to the webinar where I met them. We are keeping our eyes on the front lines of climate change and as I said this is episode one in a series about reporting from the front lines of climate change and some of them are in Australia. We can learn a lot about being prepared, going in early, going in hard and bringing emissions to zero. My name is Vivian Langford. Tune in next Monday at 5pm. Good night and good luck. This is cold. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's cold. 
Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Keep strong, stay safe and of course keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye. Hey, it's Scarlett Cook. Get piano powered. Get community radio powered. Stay tuned.